I think grit is how you respond to and overcome adversity. And, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I took this quote from Andy Grove from Intel, and it was, bad companies are destroyed by crisis, good companies survive them, great companies are improved by them. But I think that this applies to individuals as well. It's a huge opportunity when you face adversity, if you can manage through it, to come out of it on the other side, a better person, a better professional. And when I think of the, the folks that really have shown a lot of grit, they've got this ability to see clarity in the issues that are happening. They look in the mirror in, in terms of owning the problem, the challenge, and they're willing to put in the commitment and the work to fix it. And so those are the folks that I think demonstrate grit on a daily basis. And I love to have people like that on our team. Hi, I'm Jubin go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. I get these things all started the exact same way. I screw them all up the exact same way. I'm going to read your background back to you. When I screw something up, tell me what I did, all right? Will do. You got your bachelor's in business from Wilfrid Laurier. Already a Laurier. bad start. Yeah, Laurier, exactly. Already a... You'd have to put on your Canadian accent. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I hear you talk, you have your Canadian accent on. So I had to put myself in your shoes. Um, all right. And then you got your master's in marketing from, you say it, I'm not going to say it. University of Strathclyde. Okay, perfect. And then you went to Delano Technology. You were in the marketing comms team for uh, about a year. Then you went to Fujifilm Canada, marketing comms team for about a year. And then you uh, were at Research in Motion. You were on the marketing comms team for about a year. And then Ceridian Canada, you were an AE there for a couple of years. And from there, you found Salesforce. And I think you were in the Toronto office in Salesforce. That was in 2006 when you joined. I think it was probably around four or 500-ish employees at that point. Maybe a little bit more, actually. It's about 800. Yeah, probably closer to 800, exactly. And then you started as an AE and you had an incredible run there. You did it a year as an AE and then four months as a senior AE. Then you became a manager. You managed corporate sales for about two years. You became a regional manager for corporate sales for a little over a year. Then the VP of corporate sales for two years, AVP of commercial sales for about three years, VP of global sales at Pardot for a year and a half. And then as of 2016, you joined a company called Sprout Social. At the time, it was doing about 30 million of revenue. You joined as the global VP of sales. You did that for about four and a half years. And as of about six months ago, you were promoted to president. Congratulations. Thank what did you. I miss? Uh, you got most of it. I think probably the only things that are not on there, there's a couple entrepreneurial journeys I had that are smattered in along the way. And just recently, it'll be announced shortly here, I joined the board of Full Story, a Kleiner company. Let's go. Love that. We're pumped. Excited to have you. What was your first ever job? First job that you got a paycheck in your hand? Could have been cash, could have been reported to the W-2. Yeah. I was a busboy cleaning tables at the Muddy Duck restaurant in a little place called Newmarket, Ontario, just outside of Toronto. That's awesome. Okay, great. So I want to jump right into it because we have a lot to cover. I have a lot of questions for you. So if that's okay, let's just do this thing. First, we were introduced through a previous guest, Mark Wayland. Yeah. Who's awesome, by the way. He's now a CRO of Box, and he was your boss when you were in Pardot. Is that right? 
Yeah, no, we were peers for a long period of time when we were both in commercial sales when Mark moved over. And then after I left Pardot, Mark actually took over the Pardot team and no continued to just crush it. So the way that it happened is that someone, Mark posted about our episode on LinkedIn. And then I think someone commented your name somehow, somewhere along the way. And then Mark tagged me and said, Jubin, you, you got to get Ryan on. This is going to be a hard question for you to answer, but why do you think he said that? Like, what do you think he saw in you? Why do you think he thought you'd be a good guest? Like, why do you think he was excited for others to hear your story? Yeah, that is that's a tough one to answer. It's an I impossible mean, question. I, I think one of the biggest things is that when you were at Salesforce and you've had a lot of the amazing people I've had a chance to work with through the years at Salesforce, you were in the trenches together and you learned a lot from each other. And I think that there's a lot of that there. I mean, when I look at Mark and the success that he's had, both at Salesforce and later, there's so much that I could take away. I mean, I think he taught a lot of us about presence and presentation and how to deliver in front of an audience and how to sell enterprise deals. And I think probably from, from his perspective, when he took over the Pardot team, he got a lot of great knowledge from the way that we had built that team and that culture and the go-to-market yep. strategy. So I actually think it's probably a lot to do with the team that we built and that he had a chance to work with. We've had a lot of ex-Salesforce people on. We've Bob Fratty from yeah. Slack, Mike Wolf, the list goes on and on. So I actually want to talk more about Sprout Social today. Cool. And I want to talk a lot about kind of Ryan and the inputs that feed you into making who you are as an employee at Sprout and, and the like. So a couple things. One, as I did research for this interview, what struck me was that Sprout is a lot bigger than I thought. It's a $3 billion market cap company. It's grown like gangbusters over the last year, year and a half. So business has been good and a hard time for, for many people. It's doing over 100 million in revenue. Again, you started when it was about 30 million of revenue. Can you take 30 seconds to tell the audience what Sprout does? Yeah, we're in the social media management space, founded in 2010, really with the idea that the world has changed. Half the world's population is on social today, and social has become the main mode of communication for pretty much all customers. Everyone you want to interact with is in on social. And this is the place that people are being influenced, where they're getting new ideas, where they're buying, where they're looking for customer support. And there's so many social networks out there that brands of all shapes and sizes have to figure out how to manage all of this across Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and the list and list goes on and on. And our platform allows them to centralize all of their work and engage with all of these social networks from one place where they can not just communicate with customers but gather all of the business intelligence that lives within social to really understand what decisions they should be making from a business perspective. So we do that for about 28,000 companies across a hundred different countries. And yeah, we took the company public in 2019 and we're sitting at about 170 million run rate right now. 170? Holy crap. How'd you find it? Tell me about the process of leaving Salesforce, going to Sprout. Yeah. I mean, first, I love the journey at Salesforce. I learned so much there. My last job was probably my favorite and I was working for the co-founder of Parda, Adam Blitzer. And for me, that was just a great opportunity because we ran that as a startup within this massive company. We had our own P&L, our own executive team. We were able to do our own thing. And what I realized was that I loved that work. I loved seeing the impact of my effort every day and growing and scaling a team. And I started to realize that that's what I wanted to do with my career. And it's funny how the, the world works. In and around that time, I got 
Justin, the CEO and founder, reached out and asked me to grab dinner. I usually say no to these things, but the recruiter who also helped us said, hey, this is a top 40 under 40 CEO. Even if you don't want to leave, you should probably build your network. Yeah. And so we went out and grabbed a beer, and I learned a ton about the business and, and realized that you know, with a culture that they had and the product that they built in this massive addressable market, there was so much goodness there. And that was the type of team that I wanted to be a part of. Uh, that's a great story. This might be a weird question. You mentioned your last job was your favorite at Salesforce. Looking at Sprout, 30 to 170, what was the hardest phase of that scale? And maybe I can be specific about different phases. Was it when you're just getting going, figuring out how to get this team up and running and how the hell to get from 30 to like 70? Was it when you got promoted to president and your scope of responsibility got bigger? Was it going public? And now all of a sudden your forecast actually matters to the street. <laughs> what phase was the hardest? And take hardest how you will. Yeah, no, it's a great question. <laughs> They're all hard. I will tell you that. <laughs> They're all hard. It's, sometimes I think it looks easy from the outside. They're all hard. I think that the, the two that I probably had the least amount of sleep and the most amount of stress when I first got started, right, that early stage at 30 million, the company had so many good things going. But at that point, we were probably a 30% grower at 30 million. And you know, w when you think about fast growing, scale up and startup, there's obviously way more opportunity there, more expectations from the investors and the board. And that was part of the reason that I, I got tapped. And so really trying to figure out pretty quickly, what are the, the lessons that I learned along my journey that would be helpful, right? And it's first principle versus playbook that I could apply what did the team need to look like? I did a ton of recruiting in that early journey. I mean, people who were there early would probably laugh and would tell you they'd see me just pacing around the office, cold calling people and trying to build the team. But I'd probably say the first six months was the hardest. I was getting introduced to the board. We had some interesting board members that made for some interesting board meetings and we were building a team and there wasn't a ton of structure in the, the sales and customer success org at that time. We didn't have a lot of the dashboarding reporting that we needed. We were figuring out segmentation and go-to-market strategy. So that, that one was a lot of work and a lot of trying to figure out what we were gonna do. And then the second one I'll give you was the period right before we went public. I mean, to your point, it's a big transition from being a private to public company. Everything is on this different stage. Everything comes with a new level of transparency. There's everything from performing for the street, but also just making sure that you maintain the culture that you've created that's so important to your growth. And ensuring that I was going to continue to evolve and be the right leader for the team was a big part of making sure we not only executed, but I was going to be able to execute on this new stage. So those two are probably the hardest. And the, the president one is too early to tell. So I'm, I'm still learning. We're, we're pretty early in that journey. And what is president? Is it all go-to-market functions, marketing, sales, pre-sales, post-sales, customer success? Exactly. That and partnership. And then I spent a, a bunch of time thinking about things related to culture with, with our CEO and, and head of people. And I'm involved in all of the public duties, the earnings, the investor Q&As and all that good stuff. This is going to sound weird, but Salesforce was your ride, right? And you kind of left the nest progressively into each next evolution of Ryan as an employee at this organization. And there was the Salesforce playbook that you were more or less following in the sense that, you know, like, yes, it was its own independent 
kind of BU with its own PNL, with its own sales ops and finance, but there's still like broader Salesforce. There's a lot of goodness that Salesforce brings around a playbook. Were you nervous when you got your first gig outside of Salesforce owning the number that you only knew those routes? Like, was there insecurity that you were just a participant and success of your circumstance within the routes that were being run and you were just executing those at a high level versus, hey, can I, and you said it, like come from a first principles perspective and apply just good thinking to building this organization from the ground up. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. I'm still nervous. I'm still still insecure. I mean, every part of the journey, everything's new, everything's different at every stage. I was definitely nervous, but I think that's what keeps you sharp. And, you know, some people refer to it as imposter syndrome or insecurity. I have that. Everybody has that. And for me, it's what's kept me sharp. It's forced me to do a few things. One, I rely heavily on the network. And, you know, some of that's from Salesforce, but it's certainly expanded from there. And I've got a lot of different go-to-market leaders cross tech and SaaS that I call on for help. My team laughs at me. I prospect a lot into amazing people on LinkedIn just to have conversations to learn. So I'll reach out to people who I think have awesome profiles and ask them if they'll spend time with me. So that's a big part of it. And I will say a huge part of this is having a supportive board and having a great partner in the CEO. And Justin, our CEO, one of the things that he said to me when we got started was, I think that your first hire needs to be someone in sales ops and rev ops, and I would prioritize that over everything. And that was fantastic advice because I realized pretty quickly as we came in, we just didn't have a lot of the structure to scale out the business. And so for me, that that was one of the starting points. But I I think you're always in a, a stage of learning and growing and being nervous about what's next. Yeah, fair enough. I've heard you say that Sprout is an inbound model in the sense that when you joined, all the leads were coming in inbound. Today, it's about 95% inbound leads. Mm-hmm. Does your team do no lead gen? Like, <laughs> I guess, so So let me just preface the question with, I put myself in your shoes thinking about that response. And when you say it's an inbound model, obviously business has been good. Inbound has continued to grow, especially in a world where people's digital identities become more important and connecting with each other online is very, very important, especially organizations. Mm-hmm. But like, what if, couldn't grow organically to 50% through inbound leads and you didn't build a muscle for the organization because you were reliant on inbound, not doing outbound. I don't know, maybe that's totally unfair, but I was just trying to understand that from from your perspective. Yeah, one, I'll highlight it's a huge luxury. We're sitting in a market right now that has an incredibly massive TAM. You're hard-pressed to think of an organization or brand that doesn't have to think about social today and or will have to make a huge investment in the future. So huge luxury that we have. The second thing is that our marketing team has created an incredible content-led inbound engine. 80% of our inbound is actually from unpaid organic sources, and it's because of this content engine that we've created. It's because of the flywheel we've created through a free trial process with little friction to get signed up. And all that generates a ton of top of funnel. And so for us, that has been really helpful, but we can't be complacent. And so since I started, we've been complementing that with outbound efforts. We've got outbound BDRs. We're doing ABM strategy. Our AEs do prospecting, especially in the mid-market and enterprise space. But we've been fortunate enough 
that our marketing team and our approaches continue to pace it. And I, I look at a company like HubSpot as a great example, right? When they went public, smaller than us, 70 million, they were 90% inbound. Today at a billion dollar run rate, I believe they're still at 90% inbound. Cloudflare similar. Yeah, you look at those and you say, hey, it can be done. You have to continue to evolve and get better even on the marketing side to be able to generate that though. Yeah, and I guess from the business's perspective, given the way that the top of funnel works, it makes a lot of sense to have the revenue leader also look after the marketing side of the house as well so that those two are complementary. You've said two things that I just want to understand better. The first, our AEs look a lot like customer success reps. And the second, and this was like heart of COVID when I think you were doing an interview, mm-hmm. was that our field reps look like inside reps and our inside reps look like field reps. They're indistinguishable, right? Because everyone's working from home. Can you unpack those for me a little bit? From a AE perspective, and this goes back to the point that you had made about things that happen at Salesforce and running the playbook or running the routes. Absolutely, learned so much there. A lot of those plays just didn't work at Sprout. And by the way, I came in and I probably tried to run a bunch of them. Not well. But one of the things that I really realized about the model that we had at Sprout, especially because it was product-led with a trial model, was customers were in the product before we could even talk to them. And so as an AE, the bar was a whole lot higher. You couldn't just call them and try and run through your normal discovery process. They were in the product. They were interacting with the technology. So your understanding of the the product and the value prop needed to be better. Your understanding of that practitioner, the person you're selling to, needed to be at expert levels so that you're actually adding more value. And those AEs needed to find ways to engage with those buyers in new, unique ways. It was very different than someone coming in and saying, hey, I want a demo. And so that's what I mean by our AEs look more like customer success. They've got to take a very different approach. The other thing I would just say is we've got a motto here at Sprout, which is we want to be a joy to do business with. And you know, when you think about joy to do business with, hopefully it conjures some images in your mind of this incredible customer experience and journey. And I want all of our AEs to feel that way, right? We want sales to feel like an amazing experience that our customers really value. And so that's what I mean when I say our AEs are like customer success. So I don't even like calling them field reps Mm -hmm. because it's a misnomer. Like they're enterprise reps. Like they are typically more tenured, trying to execute on more complex deal cycles with larger companies. Mm -hmm. That takes more of a unique skill set than a high velocity engine. Do you think that moving forward, enterprise reps will continue to look more like higher velocity reps? And I'm trying not to use the word field and inside. Does the question make sense? Question makes sense. I think it all depends on your business model and who you're selling to and you know, what territories look like and, and what you're covering. For us, everybody's a, you know, a quote-unquote field rep in the sense that you know, we're going to very much be in a hybrid environment even when people return. I think you're going to have so many of your folks that are actually working from where they live. And we've proven that our people can be incredibly productive that way, and they've actually found ways to enjoy life more in this new setup. And so I think everybody's going to be a field rep. But to your question around enterprise or field reps in their role, I think it depends on the type of business that they're in. For us, more high velocity than you know, what an enterprise rep looks like at Salesforce, for example. And that works. And you know, many of the profiles for our people, when we think about them, we want sophistication 
where someone can get in front of an executive and they can do real solution selling and they can work through procurement and legal. But I also want them to have the stamina and the speed to get a lot of deals done, to touch a lot of customers. So I think it's evolving, but it's very specific to the business that you're in. I completely agree with you. I think it's evolving. When you left Salesforce and you started to your point, And by the way, I love that you're like cold emailing prospects to either mentor you or come work for you. It's amazing. When you applied routes that didn't work, Mm -hmm. when you pushed the limits on what Sprout could do, what the go-to-market organization could look like, what was the feedback loop for you to know when something wasn't working? Like, when do you know that you need to pull the plug when do you feel like it's too late? I don't know. Like I've done this at Kleiner and it ends up being sleepless nights for me that I just have my own kind of like playing the tape back and trying to figure out, is it worth even going down this path? Do I try this? I try it and then I fail. Is that failure okay? I don't know. What does those feedbacks look like for you? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One of the things I've learned and I've certainly felt this, especially now with the new title is you need to find ways to be really accessible and to reduce any feeling of hierarchy so that people will give you feedback, right? I think oftentimes titles end up being blockers for really good feedback loops. So I've tried to work really hard to be engaged and accessible to our team so people feel comfortable sharing feedback. And I think you have to ask for the feedback and ask in a way that you really want it. So I think that's that's a starting point and I've tried to always do that. I think that the other thing is sometimes it's data, right? I'd like to say it's always data. And I'm fortunate that I've got some really data-driven sales leaders and operations leaders that are on our team. I look at the data myself. We typically are running on a monthly cadence and how we run the business. So you can see the signals pretty quickly. You don't have to wait till the end of a quarter to know if something's going wrong. So that helps. You know, I'll give you a real example. When I started, and I said during this session, our trial is a differentiator for us. We want people in the product. When I joined, I thought it was a bad idea. I was thinking, you know, back to my Salesforce DNA, we just want to do demos. We don't want to waste time with people in the product that people who are probably signing up for trials are not qualified buyers. And I would try and convert all these trials to actually getting people into the demo and not really taking advantage of that trial. And our CEO kind of highlighted to me that that was part of our secret sauce, right? This idea of getting the hands on the keyboard was a differentiator for us because everybody else in our market relied on heavy services and implementation, long deployments, poor adoption. And if we could show customers within that 30-day trial period without them ever signing a contract, we'd won. And so that was a great example of, of him sort of challenging me on this approach that I thought was the right one that could have been really disruptive for our business. What's the number one skill that you've seen be successful in the hires that you've made at Sprout? What's the thing that you're really looking for? I think there's probably two things I think about. One, mastery of craft. I love people who just want to get better. We've, and I stole this from Satya Nadella, but we use it a lot at Sprout. He's once said that they are looking for learn-it-alls, not know-it-alls. That's what they want to hire, learn-it-alls. And in our interview process, as we're engaging with people, I'm always trying to figure out how people learn and what their thirst for knowledge looks like and how they're evolving and growing. And that, that's one of the things I, I've seen. And I've got so many of my leaders that came from those early days of prospecting back in 2006, Steen, 
that have turned into these incredible leaders that have scaled at every stage of the growth for the company. And that's definitely one of the things that I've seen, that they're pushing themselves to learn and grow and evolve. That's the first piece. And then the second piece, and it's probably tied to it, they're typically their biggest critic. I need to build them up versus provide them with a ton of feedback. They usually have some pretty good self-awareness, but they're hard on themselves. They always think that they can be better. And they're looking for feedback from me on ways that they can get better to deliver more for the company. So there's probably a few things that are tied in there, but I love people who are always learning and I love people that have a focus on getting better every day. How do you figure out, if you've never worked with them, how someone learns if they love to learn? Like, what do you do in an interview process to uncover that? One of the the biggest tells is how do they prepare for the interview? What did they do to ensure that they were going to show up at their best? I often ask that question. You know, what did you do to prepare? What did it look like? Did you do the trial? Did you read our customer reviews? Did you go to G2 and check out what customers were saying? What did you do to learn more about us? Did you call a practitioner? Did you listen to podcasts that I was on or anybody else that was interviewing you? So I like to see what the learning process looks like because I think people can give you those answers but it shows pretty quickly in just how they prepare to to meet with you because that's how they're going to show up in front of your customers. Do you think the attributes that leaders look for in their teams are often the ones that are most prominent in themselves? The reason I ask, and this is a leading question, but I, in preparing for this, talk to a bunch of people who work for you, have worked with you, et cetera, and pretty much the most consistent thing that they said is that you are a voracious learner. Like you are in the shower listening to podcasts, (laughs) you're working out listening to podcasts, master classes on the weekends. Do you feel like it's important as a leader to figure out, hey, these are the traits that are important to me, i.e. like these are the traits that I'm also looking for in, in the team? Yeah, I think inevitably, unfortunately, we all have a little bit of ego and it's tied into the things that we're looking for when we're trying to hire people. So certainly that exists. We've tried to create some frameworks for ourselves to ensure that we're consistent across the board on how we recruit and the things that we we look for. There's always going to be elements that are going to have you attracted to more candidates and they probably do end up looking more like you or they have experience that feels similar, life experience that feels similar. But we've tried to make sure that we've got a baseline or a foundation on how we look at people to ensure that we're being fair in our approach and getting the best people in. Where does that come from for you? You're at the peak right now, you know, and you're grinding for mentorship. Where does that drive come from for you to just like keep wanting to get better? Is it a fear of failure? Is it a a high that you get from learning new things? Like where does that actually... What are those logs that burn your fire? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it really does start from the upbringing. And I've heard you talk a little bit about this, but I'm a first-generation Canadian immigrant parents. My dad was the one that worked. My mom raised us. And neither of them really did university or college until later. And so when I think about why I care so much about learning, it was ingrained in me from a very young age that education was critically important. And not just showing up, but doing your best. So my friends laugh at this story, but I'll share it with you. I think I I was in high school, might have been a freshman, and I ended up getting an 80% on a math test, which, you know, not not that bad. And my dad freaked out, and he ended up sending me to Kumon. And I don't know if you know much about Mm -hmm. Kumon. I do. But Kumon, they start you 
at the very beginning, adding and subtracting. Yeah. And I ended up going as a, I think I was 14 or 15, and I was sitting with five and six-year-olds doing adding and subtraction and getting started. But his whole methodology was that building up the foundation, consistency and execution over time will, will always drive great results. And so I think that was just ingrained in me. And then, you know, later on in, in life, I saw my mom end up going back to college to get a degree in early childhood education. And it was just was so inspiring to see her do that. And so I, th I think from that perspective, there's an element of just knowing that education is important. And then there is a, a big part of me going back to just being insecure and wanting to make sure that, that I'm at my very best. And I look around today, we've got 700 plus employees. They're expecting me and the leadership team to show up at our very best. Them and their families are relying on us and I don't wanna let people down. I think about that a lot. That hit home for me. When you have folks that come to America, they don't have much to rely on, but mastery of a craft and being hard on themselves. That's why I was asking you about it. Cause like when you have nothing, you better get good at something. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty healthy to channel that through a career that I think gives you the number one opportunity to have upward mobility in life. And that's why this country is like so amazing because totally like great. you can do that through a career. And I think you only get better by being hard on yourself. And I think if you view your career as the number one avenue in order to have like upward social and political and everything, all mobility upwards, then you have to really dedicate yourself to your craft. So anyway, I get that wholeheartedly. I really do. And, you know, vulnerability is definitely not one of the traits that was taught to me growing up. So it's really cool to see you having taken that as a leader. You have a couple kids, I, I think. Do. Uh, Two girls. Two girls. You know, I learned a lot at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. What are things that you, having it better than, than our parents did, what are the things that you want to take and teach them? And what are some of the things that you'd probably leave at the door? Yeah. You're right. I mean, I think about this a lot. My, my wife and I talk about this a lot. Our kids' upbringing the luxuries they have are very different than what we had. And, and we never yeah. wanted for anything, but it's very different. And so, yeah. you know, watching the grind of our parents really made us who we are. And so I think about that a lot because I want my kids to have the right values. I want them to work incredibly hard. I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm part of a not-for-profit called Rework Training. And the whole purpose behind this is to find young candidates, mostly black and brown, in the south and west side of Chicago and help them find opportunity in sales. Because to your point, it's the best career in the world, and many of these people don't even know it exists. And I actually, for a while, would end up taking my daughter with me. These candidates meet on the weekends. All of the work happens Saturday and Sunday. They go through an eight-week training program every weekend, building up their skill set to be able to get a job in tech sales. And I would bring my daughter in when I would go present to that group. And I would share with her that these folks are people that are grinding on their weekend to create a better life for themselves. It's this type of work ethic and commitment that help you get to levels of success. So I try and have some of those conversations. I do think some of it will happen through osmosis because the kids see us working and grinding. So I think about that every day. And I just want them to be good people at the end of the day. I just want them to take care of each other, take care of their family, and, and to be good to those around them in their community. So I think about those things a lot, and so does my wife. I get scared of not learning. Like I get scared the moment that my career 
pauses in like all the learnings that I want, like that's when I quit jobs. Like when I stop learning, how do you think about that? Like I'm scared of failure and failure to me is not getting better. How do you think about that? How do you measure that? I definitely have FOMO on the learning side. I mean, (laughs) Slack kind of drives me crazy because I'll see call recordings of customer calls and or we'll, we'll share recordings of new trainings and I'll try and consume everything. Or there's podcasts that get shared out with great content or articles. And so, you know, I have a greatest hits list and, and everything queued up to be able to go through all that. I think about it a lot, but I also feel like if you're constantly keeping an eye on the future and the things that you want to accomplish, inevitably you're going to end up with a list of things that you need to do to get to that end state, right? And we, we know that it's a journey down destination, but on that journey, there's going to be things that you need to do, things that you need to accomplish to be able to reach those milestones. And so for us, one of the big ones obviously was going public. We've got a lot of aspirations in front of us from a business perspective. There's a lot that we need to do and get right over the next number of years to get there. And so I've got a list of things that we're working on, that we're starting to think about, that we need to execute on. So I, I feel like there's always opportunity to push yourself. For me, it's, am I passionate about the work that I'm doing, the people I'm working with and the problems that I'm solving? Does it get me excited every day? And if it does, I know that I'm gonna keep learning. And the last thing I'll just say there, as it relates to people, I'm a massive, massive believer in just building a team around you that can teach you. And so in every direction, I'm getting a ton of value, whether it's our CEO or board, my peers, or people that are on the team, AEs, CSMs. We've hired such incredible people who are challenging us every day. And so I feel like I get to be a sponge as I come in. Can you instill a culture of learning or is that a quality that has to be innate when you join the organization? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that if you're really clear in your job descriptions, in your interview process, on the fact that you prioritize this, that you're actually interviewing for those types of traits. And then when people come in, it wasn't just words that you said, but you're living up to those expectations. You're delivering on those expectations. I think that you can create that culture. And I think that inevitably, people who want to learn are going to be more inspired to join your team than those that feel like they've figured it out. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. On the learning side, like one of the things that I find tricky with learning is that it's very hard to measure. Sure, there is like enablement. So you can bring your team into a room and everyone can sit down and you can have a sales coach or whatever. You can learn medic, you can learn how to do the pitch, you can do pitch certification, et cetera. But like, how do they learn on their own time? And typically learning happens when it's not in a formal work setting, like on your own time. And the irony is that the best reps, the best leaders that I've ever seen are great because of the million things that they do that nobody else sees, mm-hmm. like consistently over and over again. And I think learning is a big piece of that. And they're always learning. You know, who knows that you're listening to a podcast in the shower? Hopefully nobody, <laughs> right? And so how do you... Um, I guess I'm just trying to get my arms around, like, how do you measure that? How do you like reinforce that? How do you coach that actively and make sure that there's a yardstick of this is the bar that we want people to actively learn Uh and learning can be learning about yourself. Learning can be learning about something else, like just getting better, generally speaking. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
I think there's a few things. To your point, you can set up some structure to help people along the journey and to give direction on what great looks like. And so we're doing that. We're actually doing that right now. We, we've launched this new messaging called See Social Differently, and we've got everybody certifying across the company. And they all did videos, and they all got scored, and they're going to present actually in front of our executive team next week, the finalists, which, which was awesome. And it was all customer stories that were being told. And it was everybody taking the messaging and putting it in their own words. So you can do those things from a structural standpoint. We share a lot of resources we think about learning in a few different ways. We think about it, you know, one, for the craft or discipline, so if you're in sales or success. Then we think about it as it relates to the, the industry. Like, do you know what marketers care about? And then we think about it from the product and tech. Do you know your product inside out, especially because your customers are already in the product? So we try and create these learning opportunities for people along the way, and we try and present it to them. But I, th- I think at the end of the day, it ends up being about goal setting and what people want from their career. And to get to the end state or to get promoted or to get better, there's so much work that needs to go in. And that work, so much of it actually ends up being just learning, right? It ends up being the stuff that people don't necessarily see that you're doing after hours or on your weekends to get better at your craft or along those three pillars that I shared. And I think that's a big part of it, inspiring people to see that the end state is only going to happen if you actually put in those quality inputs. And so much of those quality inputs is, is actually all about learning. Yeah, that's a really good perspective. Now that you're, you know, you have the fancy title, <laughs> you have the big responsibility, you have this big organization. How do you think about internal decision-making? So I'll be specific. Yeah. Like you can probably unilaterally make a decision on the go-to-market side. Is that the right thing to do? No, in the sense that it's a lot easier to get everyone on board because you're going to need a lot of other functional areas to support you and probably drive that initiative. How do you think about collaboration, effective collaboration internally? I've screwed this up in 10 different ways. It's probably my biggest weakness is like getting people on the same page as me because I'm so blind because all I can think about is I know this is right. Why don't you know that this is right kind of thing? How do you think about that? Yeah, I've had to work on it. I didn't have as much experience doing it until I got to Pardot. And then I started to learn about what real cross-collaboration looked like. And then when I got to Sprout, it was full on, right? You actually were spending a ton of time with the product team and engineering team on things like roadmap or the finance team and building budgets or the marketing team and and building campaigns, all that good stuff. And so I've, I've had to work on it a lot. In my role today, one of the things I think about is a big part of my job is to be able to deliver the vision, to deliver a compelling vision that people can see. Where are we going as a company? How are we going to get there? And that's certainly the revenue goals and the number goals, but what kind of company do we want to be along that journey? And so for me, a lot of what I end up doing is trying to share more about the vision and things that we're doing as a company, what we're going to need to do to get there, and having people be inspired by that so that they want to come alongside of it. And so I'll spend a bunch of time with our our product team or a marketing team or a finance team sharing some of those elements. And I think it's a combination of sharing that inspiration, but also trying to learn more about the work that they're doing, trying to understand more about some of the, the things that they're working on and perhaps some of the challenges in the way. And I honestly think it's trust and rapport that happens over time that 
ultimately get you to a place where you build these really healthy, productive, trusting relationships. Well, I wish I had that maturity, especially earlier in my career. Like I remember at one of the startups that I was at, we were having success dropping off bottles of wine. And so I thought we should scale this ABM campaign and build like little robots. It doesn't matter, but we would go and build these robots and send them to the team. And I just thought it was a great idea. And I, I was having a lot of success with it as a rep. I thought others would as well. And so I got marketing on board and I pushed so hard in every different way. And I knew it was gonna lead to the, a better outcome for the business and for the revenue team. It ended up with me in a parking lot, walking around with our VP of marketing, basically being told like, we understand that you're like passionate about this and we agree with you that this is the right direction, but the way that you're approaching it, like you can't just mow us over. <laughs> Like you can't, like you can't, you can't just come in like the Tasmanian devil and just like ruin everything along the way because you're so tunnel visioned towards what you want to accomplish. And we agree, like that's the right end state, but like, we want to want to help you. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, like if, if we don't want that, or if we feel like we're not participatory and collaborative in this process, it's just not as fun. And that was a really good moment for me of like, oh man, like just don't do it like that. So I've learned that lesson a couple of times the hard way. Okay, the other thing that I have heard talking to your team is that, and this is more your direct team, is that you spend a lot of time doing dirty work. And what I mean by that, like I mean that in a positive <laughs> way. Jim Herbal said, the old CEO of Box, he talks about getting his fingernails dirty as one of his key principles to leadership. And it reminded me of this where you go in, and people are surprised how deep in the trenches you get. That could be anything from recruiting to closing deals to you doing prospecting on, on others' behalf. Do you feel like that's a key tenant for you of how to be an effective internal leader for your team? Yeah, there's a few elements of that for me. One, I just like to work. So <laughs> there's yeah. an element, but you know, in the roles that we end up in, sometimes they're so operational, you miss being on the front lines. I miss spending more time with customers. I like recruiting. So there's there's so many elements, I actually just enjoy the work. The second piece is I'm always trying to ensure that I'm building credibility with the team and that the team sees that the things that I'm asking them to do, I am absolutely willing to do myself. And I'll learn along the way and try and share some of the learning. So there's an element of that as well that I'm, I'm trying to share with the team as we go through it. And I think that leaders just generally stay sharper, they're closer to the business when they're actually doing the work. So if I'm not spending enough time with customers, if I'm not helping with a prospecting car or closing a deal, I may not have true perspective on what our customers care about. If I'm not trying to recruit great talent and hearing some of the objections or concerns, I may be missing out on some of the things that we really need to tweak from an employer branding perspective. So I, th I think there's that element too that beyond me just enjoying it and building credibility, it makes me better at my job. Mm, I totally agree. Okay, one more question. So the growth rate when you started was like 30% to your point. What is it now, like 50, 60% in the last couple of years-ish? I think the, the last quarter we announced was organic of 35%. Okay, so it's ticked up like 5% in terms of the growth rate. So it's just been consistently 30, 35%. That is, at your scale, quite a lot. 
things are changing quite a bit when you're doing from 100 to $130 million, right? How much time and energy do you spend on managing change internally for the organization? So a consistent theme that we see for organizations that are growing quickly like this is like, there's just a lot of shit, excuse my language, that happens along the way when the business is moving so fast. And often the reason learning is so important is because you have to learn ahead of where the business is about to be because it's growing so quickly and it's really hard to keep up with that. How much time do you spend thinking about and coaching the team on being comfortable with the uncomfortable, if you will? A lot, a lot. And I actually didn't really appreciate this when I joined in that change is hard and it might be easy when you're making the decision. And that's one of the things I've really realized. When I'm sitting in the driver's seat and I can make all these changes, it's easy for me because I've made the decision. For everybody else, it's cascading. And so really nailing the communications, nailing the why is so important. And we've got better at it over time. I will also say that I've just got some amazing leaders around me that really push me on this. They push me when we're maybe moving too fast or they push me when the why really hasn't been properly defined. And you need people like that around you that can see some of your blind spots. But the communication for change management is so important. You ultimately, at the end of the day, want your 700 strong behind you all running in the same direction. And if they don't really understand the strategy or what the potential outcomes could be, they're gonna be stuck. And so we know that we've really gotta be focused in on communicating properly. And aside from my team, we're very fortunate that our PR and comms team are masters at this. And not just from a company level, but they've helped share some of those lessons down to the department level so we're better at the ways in which we communicate change. But we're still working on it, by the way, and we'll get things wrong, so. Yeah, and unpacking that a little bit more, you're kind of saying like, look, the easiest way to deal with change management is by having everyone buy in to the grand vision of why we're changing so quickly. In order to do that, we need to lay out that vision in a really compelling way and then reinforce that through a lot of just effective communication. Is that fair? You said it much better than me. And you know, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, early on in my career at Sprout, being in social, I took a Mark Zuckerberg quote of move fast and break things. And I realized like that was really bad advice for us. And it was a really bad thing for me to be saying because it was creating a lot of friction and challenge for our team. And our team wasn't able to, to move the way that I wanted to because I was missing a lot of those elements. And I've tried to be a whole lot more thoughtful around change as we move forward. And I've asked my leaders to do the same. And you know, I can really see the organization has matured a lot there. It's a great place to wrap it up. Thank you, Ryan. Same two questions, always close with the same ones. First one, what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? I think grit is how you respond to and overcome adversity. And, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I took this quote from Andy Grove from Intel, and it was, bad companies are destroyed by crisis, good companies survive them, great companies are improved by them. And we use that a lot in just sharing how we thought about executing in this new world, especially because we were only a quarter into being a public company when the pandemic started. But I think that this applies to individuals as well. It's a huge opportunity when you face adversity, if you can manage through it, to come out of it on the other side, a better person, a better professional. And when I think of the the folks that really have shown a lot of grit, they've got this ability to see clarity in the issues that are happening. They look in the mirror 
in, in terms of owning the problem, the challenge, and they're willing to put in the commitment and the work to fix it. And so those are the folks that I think demonstrate grit on a daily basis. And I love to have people like that on our team. If there are folks that think they have that, are you hiring? How should they get a hold of you, et cetera? Yes, we are absolutely hiring. LinkedIn is a great way to get in touch. Ryan, thank you for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.